Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect Go Loud Sounds better with us Magnified with Matt Cooper is back and thank you for joining us. If you're not familiar with what we do, well, it's a podcast series of longer interviews that I do at my kitchen table in Dublin. Interviews that wouldn't fit in full on my radio show, The Last Word on Today FM. It's full of interesting stories of interesting people who do interesting things. Simple as that. And hopefully, as well as interesting and informing you, you'll find it entertaining as well. We're back because we're delighted to have the Strategic Power Group on board to help us with the production. This is a company making significant advances in the solar PV and battery energy storage technology sectors, both of which are essential to the development of a more environmentally sustainable Ireland. The delivery of new and renewable sources of clean energy throughout the country is something that features as very important in my new book, Who Really Owns Ireland? So I'm delighted to have a contributor to the podcast who's involved now in sponsoring Magnified. So, let's turn to today's guest. Jackie O'Donovan is a remarkable Irish woman who's also British. She is a CBE, which she was awarded not long after we recorded this podcast. But she's very, very proud of her West Cork roots, like so many Irish people in England are. But she also has an extraordinary personal business story. How she, at the age of 19, took over a family business in waste management from her late father. So think about it, a young woman in a very male-dominated world. But when you hear Jackie O'Donovan, you're going to find out why it is she has been such a success. Jackie O'Donovan, thank you so much for joining me here at my kitchen table uh, on a visit to Dublin, which you're not particularly familiar with, are you? West Cork is your place rather than London. Yes, West Cork is. I've got many, many friends in Dublin, so I fly in, go from restaurant to restaurant and to the bed and back to England. You're enjoying retirement, though, are you? No, I'm far from retired yet. We get to that. Tell us about the waste management business, because whenever I mention waste management to people, they immediately say Tony Soprano. So are you the Tony Soprano <laughs> of London Waste Management? I've never actually wa- uh, watched The Sopranos. I must do it. Maybe I need to put it on the bucket list. Um, the waste management business, well, in London, it's obviously predominantly uh, men. Well, I suppose in Ireland, it's predominantly men as well. Um, Dad died when I was 17. I'm the youngest of four. I've got two brothers and a sister. And um, my brother, my older brother was only married three weeks when dad had a massive heart attack and died. Mum was 48. We thought she was absolutely ancient. Little did we know. And um, I think being the youngest, I was left at home to make sure mum didn't do anything that she shouldn't do. And then the elder two tried their utmost to... I suppose, try and patch things together. You I mean, Dad was a phenomenal character in the industry, uh, in the Irish community. Um, so he was always, always going to be a hard act to follow. And So just tell me a little bit more about him and the background. But he was first-generation Irish who moved across, was he? Yeah, so he was born in um, Goline, West Cork, and so was Mother. He moved when he was five to Dremelig because Granny was frightened, but they were right near the sea. He was, they, she was frightened they were going to drown. 
um, if we only had the house now, hey, we could retire 10 years ago. But um, then he went working for Drina. So he got the infamous nickname of Sputnik because the first Russian satellite had gone up called Sputnik and apparently my dad was always first to get to the job. So he got nicknamed Sputnik and he absolutely detested it. And even to this day now, people will come up to me and say, oh, I knew your dad Sputnik. And it makes me laugh because if he was there, he would, um, let's say, curse them. Yeah, so... um, yeah, it's it's male dominated. So, why did your parents move to England? Um, I suppose need. It was in the early fifties. Um, there was hardly any work in in West Cork. It was a very small area. Uh, Mum and Dad met in the dance hall of Skibbereen. Dad went first. Uh, used to ring Mum every Sunday at payphone, and then when he built the money up enough to bring her over he brought her over and then they did a bit of traveling they went up to northampton that didn't work out then they had my two eldest siblings and they came back home that didn't work so they had the third sibling en route so we've got one that was actually born in dublin and uh we they settled in west northwest london and along came i how did your father get into the waste management business so he worked for what was called as um, British Rail then, which is now Network Rail, and he just had this ambition of wanting to be his own boss. So he actually started in demolition, and then he went from demolition into waste management because in those days, in the late 50s, early 60s, there was no such thing as waste management. So he got into the waste management. Um, because if you're demolishing buildings, you have to bring all to the rubble the somewhere. Way. Yeah, exactly. And that's how he got into the waste. Um, so I suppose by the time he died in 85, 51, he was more in the waste than he was into the demolition. Um, and we had two different yards. We had a builder's merchant. I mean, it was, quite, it was a substantial business. Um, so my two older siblings tried their hardest to sort of patch everything together. But keeping in mind, my brother was only married three weeks. So he'd come out of a lorry. Dad had said, right, time to get out of the lorry, get into the yard. And, you know, you need to learn how to do the other bits and pieces. And bang, Dad died of a heart attack. So This was completely a shock, was it? Had he had oh, any, yeah, in, any ill health before that? No, no ill health. And probably looked after himself very well. Uh, in them days, having a private doctor was probably a bit of a luxury, but he had a private doctor, a very good private doctor. So, yeah, okay, he was a bit overweight, but Dad wasn't a drinker per se. If Dad went on the drink, he'd go on the drink for two weeks and then he wouldn't drink for six months. So he wasn't a, a drinker as in every Friday night or anything like that. Um, he was a real family man. Now, when we used to come to Ireland on every summer holiday or Easter or Christmas, we came home to Ireland in the car um, then, you know, he'd enjoy meeting his old cronies that had come over with him, but went back. So, yeah, it used to take us about two weeks to get from the boat in Wexford down to Cork. So that was quite funny, yeah. Was this a big part of your life, Doug? I mean, how much of your Irish heritage would have been emphasised even as you are growing up in London? Oh, everything. You mean, yeah, now, I don't remember. We, we were brought in as, as we fondly call County Kilburn. 
Now, I I was the youngest uh, of four, so I don't really remember too much about it, but the older siblings tell stories and they were not allowed to play with the English children. The English children weren't allowed to play with the Irish children. And now, obviously, growing up in Kilburn, we all had English accents, but no, no, you were in an Irish family and it was no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And um, if you weren't you would have to hang around with the other Irish Irish kids. And there was gangs back there. It was the Irish against the English, you know. Um, the the second brother, he's got um, a scar on his on his um, lower leg where some one of the English boys threw a slate off the roof at him and slit his slit his leg. So it was like it was like quite quite competitive back in them days. Thankfully, I was too young to remember. And then. They were demolishing. We were in a one-bedroom flat, uh, the six of us. So I was in a cot till I was five. The, the middle two were head to toe, and then the oldest had the top uh, bunk, and then mum and dad obviously had the double bed. And then we got offered, dad got offered either a £1,000 or a council flat, and he took the £1,000, and we moved to North London, and he bought his own house, his first house, um, and he paid £5,000 for a three-bedroom uh, house. And I suppose that's where our North London collection started, and that's where we've been ever since. When you used to come back to West Cork as a child, you know, you talked about the Irish-English thing in London, but then how were you treated by the Irish with your English accent? I don't think, yeah, I don't think it was as hard in Ireland as it was in England um, because in England you say you're Irish but obviously my accent is English so um, even up to recently someone said to me you're not Irish you're English you know, you've got an English accent but I said I consider myself Irish so I think that's something that we're going to have to navigate over the next few years because so many Irish are in England with kids with an English accent. So, you know, when, I, when I'm travelling, the minute I hear an Irish accent, um, I'll go, oh, you're from Ireland, where are you from? And they sort of look a little bit skew whiff at me thinking, how does she know that? And um, I was in Nice Airport recently and he, I must say he was a Kerry man and he looked like a real big farmer and I went, oh, that's an Irish accent, where are you from oh way way down south I said where's that he said Kerry I said that in the south and he said what I said I'm from West Cork my parents were born in West Cork and I feel I have to say my parents were born in West Cork as opposed to I consider myself Irish because of my accent and do you still go to West Cork much oh yeah um probably twice a month I've got a house there it's my happy place um I've got a bachelor uncle that I look after and I, I just it is just my place where I can just recharge my batteries. Um, even going in on a Saturday to feed him his lunch Saturday, stay at the house Saturday night, come back Sunday, feed him his lunch on the way to the airport, is like having a two-week holiday for me. I met you at the Renata's Real Deal conference and we were talking a little bit about your business history and when your father died, how soon after that did you get brought into the business and what age were you at that stage then? So I was 17 when Dad died, um, and I think there was a two-year transition, which is I'm, – I'm a little bit foggy about that, I think, because between trying to look after Mum and make sure Mum was okay because she obviously lost loads of weight, the shock was massive. You know, we had just had my brother's wedding. Um, people were just starting to leave and go back home to Ireland, and all of a sudden, bang, uh, we've got this massive business – 
what do we do with it? Now, I wasn't, being the youngest, I wasn't obviously um, party to what was going on and how it was going on, but they tried their best. But I think in the end, they were advised that they should um, shut it down uh, and start fresh because we didn't know what was, you know, Dad was a phenomenal businessman and we didn't know. We knew he, his nickname was Generous Joe. He said, never see you short, but only one man ever came forward and said, oh, your dad, your dad lent me a £1,000, here it is. And we knew that there must have been hundreds of those people, but none of them ever, ever came forward. So then... So they took advantage of the fact oh, that yeah, he died that he I mean, yeah, very right generous. after that. Yeah, yeah. So in uh, 1988, I, I became managing director, and it was like... Well, I'm not sure quite how that happened. There wasn't a vote around the table. The older siblings were quite happy. I was in the office. Two boys went back into the lorries. Uh, my sister went off to have my niece. And uh, there was one other girl in the office with me who went to school with one of my brothers. And um, that's how it started again. I used to get an accountant in once a month to hand, I'm showing my age now, handwrite in the journals. It was all hand done then. And um, But hang on, what was it about you that the family had the faith in the youngest child at the age of, what, 19 to go and run the business? I don't think they... I don't think it was ever discussed and it was ever thought about. It was a case of my, my older sister was having my niece, so she wasn't there. The two boys were out in the lorry, so you're the only one. You've got to do it. Um, I spent an awful lot of time, I was daddy's little girl being the youngest, so I had spent an awful lot of time with him. I felt very, very sorry for my brother because everybody, everybody was watching him to see if he would turn out to be my dad, if he was going to be my dad. And the pressure he must have felt was immense. Um, because even in the 1980s, which isn't that far back, no. but there still would have been this whole patriarchal thing that the boy took over from the father. That oh, wouldn't yeah, have been yeah, the much... farm goes to the eldest. Yeah, so and particularly in a sort of what would be regarded, as you've already referred to, as a sort of a masculine industry of demolition and waste management. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it was, you know, and even us, you know, assumed that the farm was going to go to the oldest um, and the brother was going to take over and we were all going to do all different things. Now, my sister was at... Uh, what was known as Pittman's Typing College. Um, the younger brother was in the yard in the builder's merchant and the older brother then was in the yard running, telling the lorry drivers what to do and what have you. Um, and how big was the business at this stage? Phenomenal. He would he would have been one of the biggest. He would have been one of the biggest players in London. You know, the, the site... So would there have been hundreds of employees? Hundreds, yeah, hundreds, yeah. And um, machines and demolition equipment and skip lorries and tippers. So the site that the British Library sits on in King's Cross was our yard. I mean, that would give that will give you some sort of a size. You know, the British Library is not a small um, building. And, yeah, I don't know. There was... It was just a case of I was the last one left to go into the office. And then... I started making decisions. Then I started deciding that we should do this or that. And they just left me roll with it. But how did other people react to, even leaving outside your family, in particular employees, and then I'll get in a moment to them, bankers, for example, financiers. I mean, how did all of the employees take to the daughter coming in and suddenly running the place? I suppose because we're downsized, we had 
we had kept the people that wanted us to succeed. And because um, they wanted us to succeed, they didn't see me as any different. And I suppose when clients rang, I was just the the phone dolly uh, and I'd take the order from them. Um, they didn't know I was making like major decisions behind the scenes. Um, that probably didn't come out probably till about 15 years ago, maybe 20 maximum, but more 15 years ago that I started coming out onto the speaking circuit, mixing, mingling, meeting people. Um, I kept very much in the business and doing whatever the business needed me to do. But then I identified that for us to succeed, because there was four of us to keep and mother, that I needed to get out and I needed to do more on the PR, the marketing circuit, winning awards. So then we started on the award trail and I won various awards. And then that got me um, into different magazines, newspapers, trade press. Uh, and so, that yeah. benefited the business, didn't it? Oh, massively, massively. People... People then were sitting up and noticing that, oh, she won Entrepreneur of the Year or she won PwC Businesswoman of the Year or, oh, she won Vitalized Woman of the Year. Oh, she won Institute Directors Family Business Director of the Year. So, and they went on and on and on. And one thing I will say is I'm really proud of that because I did that, the industry followed me because our industry wouldn't be into the award scene or, you know, getting the... Uh, Has it been into appointing women? No, just the award scene. They just wouldn't be into the award scene. They just would never have thought, oh, we'll get an award for this, that or the other. Come back to me. When you started running the business and having to learn, just financiers, I mean, how seriously did, for example, the bankers take you when they you went... They didn't take me seriously at all. Because um, on the basis, not just of being a woman, but also being barely an adult. Yeah, quite, yeah. Um... You know, I had absolutely everything going against me. I had a pair of boobs, not a pair of... Uh, I had blonde hair. Um, I had an English accent. I didn't play golf. And I was a female in a male-dominated industry. And the looks they gave me. And the... um, the first bank that dad banked with, and he got on really well. You I mean, back in them days, dad would ring the bank manager up and say, oh, I need X amount of pounds for the wages. I'll meet you down at so-and-so pub and I'll pick it up off you. I mean, that would never happen now. Um, but that bank called me in and said, you know, none of you are none of you are old enough and none of you will ever be as good as your dad. He was phenomenal. He had a phenomenal character. He had a phenomenal uh, sense of business about him. And, um, yeah, I was gobsmacked that he basically said, Fox Oscar, up the road you go. And I met him probably about four years ago at a wedding, uh, not a wedding, a funeral, sorry. And looking down this long table, and it was a big, uh, it was a construction funeral, it was a big funeral. And I said to someone, is that your man from that bank, um... And uh, couldn't really say it at Renatus because the logo was sit- sitting beside me. Yeah, because it was an Irish bank. It was an Irish bank. Um, and I said, "Is that your man from that bank?" And he went, "Yeah, I'm gonna have to go down and say hello." So, oh, hi, Frank. How you doing? And he's like, Jackie, how are you? I said, I'm absolutely fantastic. How are you? <gasps> Following you in all the newspapers. Oh, my God, you're doing so well. I said, thanks, Frank. And I walked off and I was 10 foot tall because it was like, I actually did what you told me all those years ago that I could never do. Had they continued to bank you? 
No, no. We moved to the next Irish bank that was in England. And that was the manager that thought that he took the account, but as far as he was concerned, Blondie didn't play golf, didn't have an Irish accent. Of course, no, as well, people would expect you to have if not necessarily an MBA, but they would expect you to have qualifications in business, perhaps. Yeah. What did you have and what did you need? Nothing. I had nothing. I absolutely had nothing. I ran out of school, two fingers up to the teacher, and I don't need you. Um, I was exceptionally good at child development at school. So I had decided that I was going to be a childminder. So me and my friend had got a job in an RAF base in Germany for two senior members of staff looking after their children. Little do they know their children were saved um, because it just wasn't it just wasn't meant to be. Um, I've got one son. Uh, his name's Joseph. I got married. I married a cavern man. And that was a mistake, but never mind. Uh, lasted about two and a half years. Had my son in between that. Got postnatal depression. Um, so the husband walked when Joseph was three months old. So me and my mum brought him up. He's my best day's work ever. Um, he's 24 now. And he he was brought up between me, my mum, my sister and my niece because he was in a family of women. And, uh, yeah, he's, he, I can take him into any social setting whatsoever and he can stand on his own two feet because I didn't have any babysitter and he went absolutely to every bacon and cabbage dinner we ever had to go to and he'd just sit there and he'd just chat away to him and it's done him the world of good. And has he developed an interest in business in the way that you developed an interest going around with your father in a similar way? Yeah, he... So, as you know, I've sold the, the business. I haven't exited yet, but I've sold it. And I said to him, you really do need to spend the time in the office with me. You need to see how I do things. You need to ask me questions about why I've made that decision. And uh, he just, he does to a degree, but he just, he has a real difficulty getting past the fact that I'm his mum. And that's just mum. Whereas other people see me and go... <gasps> It's her. Um, so he has, yeah, he has a real difficulty. But I have no doubt, I can see I can see in him, I have no doubt he's going to be a serial entrepreneur, but I would never tell him. And has he gone the formal education route that you didn't have? Yeah, he went to university. So he decided at 15 he wanted to go to university in America. I didn't know what he wanted to do, and off he went. And he chose University Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, just about half an hour outside D.C., so, um, which was catastrophic for me because, you know, only having one child, but I'm a firm believer you've got to let them find their own, their own road. And um, I flew out on a Friday, about five o'clock the flight went, and they're five hours behind. So I gained my five hours uh, on the Friday, and then I'd come back on the Sunday on the red eye and go straight into work. And it didn't, it, it just worked seamlessly. And he did that for five years. Does he regard himself as Irish? Yes, he does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, he'd put the Irish jersey on when we're playing the rugby. So he played for Saracens till he was 18. And then he got a rugby scholarship in America. And that's what Americans wanted to get into rugby. So he uh, he went on a rugby scholarship. So that's how he ended up there, yeah. I get the impression he would have had no choice but to be Irish anyway. 
Yeah, I think he's proud of his Irish um, roots and his Irish heritage because uh, obviously his dad was uh, born in Cavan. I think he went through that phase that all teenagers go through, that it's just too quiet, it's too boring, I don't really want to go there. But now he gets what I get from it, which is that... <sighs> Um, so I bring him, when I do my quick weekends, uh, he comes with me. Um, now, I'm not going to lie, if I said I'm going for 10 days, I don't think he'd be up for it. Internet isn't fantastic in West Cork. Um, I thought David Putnam had all that sorted out yeah. down there. No, yeah, no, not where I am. They went fibre optic f- about 50 yards from me. I could have died, yeah, 50 yards. And it's now always oh, going to be another five years before we get to you. And it's like, oh, whatever. So, yeah. And do you ever regret not having gone to college yourself? Do I have regrets the right? No, regret's not the right word. I'm sorry I didn't, uh, but I don't regret. I don't regret anything in my life. I don't regret any decision I've made in my personal life or my private life up to this day. Um, But I would have liked to have had some strategic training business plan training never ever had to do anything along those lines so I've never done it but now going forward where where is life going to take me I suppose people just naturally assume that I would have those skills now I can talk strategy and business plans all day long with you but ask me to actually lay it out and how it's supposed to look on paper I wouldn't know because I was going to ask you about the whole thing about reading accounts and understanding cash flow and making calculations which get quite complicated in relation to investment returns how comfortable are you with all of that throughout your career very comfortable exceptionally comfortable yeah I I listened and learned from all my accountants from all the way up I mean I'm in year 36 so you know I can tap into my accounts I can read my profit and loss. I can meet my balance sheet my EBITDA my gross profit net profit I can spot if there's something in the wrong account from the naked eye you mean I've just yeah numbers are my thing you say you sold the business but you haven't exited it yet yeah just explain that to people so um my older brother decided that he was coming up to his 60th and he's got two sons and he just said it's time to get out now then we we did a bit of a beauty parade of people we picked Grant Thornton and you know that's one thing I will say to anybody that's thinking about exiting having the right person doing the deal for you is paramount absolutely paramount and them understanding what you want and understanding you um so then we got hit with covid then we got hit with covid again and then my brother my older brother and his wife were in a serious car accident so i had to co i'd had to deal with that um my two middle siblings had had strokes. Um, the eldest one had a, a stroke prior to having the car accident. So I am completely the matriarch of the family, uh, which is really weird being the youngest. So your mother is past, has she? No, my mother lives with me. She's actually the fittest out of the lot of us. She's 87. She lives with me. Um, and she's on less tablets than any of my siblings, which is quite hilarious. Uh, but no, she's fitter than I am. Yeah, she's fitter than I am. So, yeah, it's it's weird that I'm the youngest, but I have all the responsibility of the family. So you decided to sell, but you haven't exited. You're on a workout at the moment. Yeah. So I we had they. I think they looked at the figures and thought the figures were so massive and so good. 
we can't possibly believe this. We better do an earnout. So they did an earnout. Um, and the earnout ended at the 31st of May. So we're doing the final figures now. They're absolutely desperate to keep me in the business. Um, I've been told by the CEO that, that. So the new owners are from Sweden, Sweden. is it? Sweden, yeah, Swedish, yeah, Sotera, they're called, which means sort in Sweden. And it, the first year, the year, I, I done the year, and it was absolutely fantastic. And the reason it was fantastic was because they didn't interfere with me. The CEO could see that whatever I did, I was just good at it, and he just left me at it. So I probably saw him in a year for about six hours. Are you going to stay with it now, though? They're, 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 they're asking me to stay. They're begging me to stay, actually. Asking's probably a minor statement. Uh, they're begging me to stay. They can see. He, he's told me that in, um, in England, the numbers are going down because, of course, we had all that talk pr uh, prior to Christmas about recession. And I kept telling them, I said, we're not going into recession in England. I'm telling you now we're not going into recession. There's just too much work we need to catch up on with all the lockdowns and everything. Social housing is, like, massively behind. Uh, the whole of the city hadn't, hasn't come back. And I think a lot of the office blocks will be converted back into residential blocks. So all that has to happen. You know, when you think about Canary Wharf is a whole banking, it's like a little island. It's actually like a little city, a totally different city when you drive onto the Canary Wharf. And it's all banks. But, you mean, the bankers came out very, very early on and said that productivity had gone through the roof and people working from home. So this work... Um, life balance has has. And do you see a lot of Canary Wharf being converted into residential? It's going to have to be converted into something because I don't think the bankers are going to go back. You know, it's hot desk. You know, you're expected to go to work maybe one or two days a week, and you know, just hot desk. Um, and people, the prices of houses outside London absolutely rocketed because. What you can afford in London in a two-bed shoebox with no garden, you could have a three- to four-bedroom house with a beautiful garden on the edges of the countryside. So an awful lot of people sold and moved out because they could work from home. And now they can work from home. Trying to actually get a member of staff to come into the office is an out-and-out -out nightmare. Out and out nightmare. But go back to the sale. I'm going to ask him, did you make a lot of money out of the sale? Yeah. How big was the business at the time you sold it? Do you know, it? it was quite funny. Now, keeping in mind that I've had no business training uh, at all, um, I had a figure in my head. And when I spoke to Grant Thornton, they didn't think that figure was right. And as the time went on, the process took a lot, lot longer than um, we thought it would. And... As it was going on, the numbers were getting bigger and bigger and bigger because we were busier and busier and because we were in essential um, workers. And um, we actually had an Irish company interested in us and I was really excited about it because the thought of having to hop across and what have you uh, just really appealed to me. But they, in the first bidding, they were 10 million short of what everybody else had bid. And I said to Grant Thornton, they think they're in a horse trading. Just tell them no. 
you're out the you're out the you're out the bidding and grant thornton couldn't understand what i meant by horse trading he said well what do you want about horse trading i said look just just trust me on this one just tell them they're out of the bidding not that oh you've insulted her you are out of the bidding so um yeah that was quite funny but they looked at the hair and the boobs and thought oh yeah we'll have this uh which was quite funny so i got the price i wanted which was what i'm not disclosing that i haven't disclosed that so i i don't feel comfortable disclosing that why not one i don't want everybody uh contacting me thinking i've got oodles and oodles and millions of pounds sitting there waiting to give away because i am i do an awful lot for charity an awful lot um so i've got the presidential award gosh, years ago for my work with the Irish in London. I do an awful lot with the Irish in London, the London Irish Centre, the Hammersmith Cultural Centre, ICAP Mental Health and Irish Youth Foundation, Ireland Fund. I mean, there's loads of them. And I think, unfortunately, since COVID, they've only got so many doors to knock on. Um, but, yeah, I'm happy with the figure. I, I understood why they put the urn out in. I understood why they didn't believe the numbers. Um, you know, I've done it. I've, I've, I've done my targets and it's now down to them to, um, I suppose, stick to their word. But there's something else I wanted to ask you about that. And you mentioned about the fact that your brother wanted to sell up. But did you really want to sell? Because if this has been your life since you were, well, since... You were a child with your father going around and then running the business from the age of 19. I mean, how do you actually let something like that go? And Okay, you're still working there and you might continue to work there by the sound of it, but letting the ownership of something that was so intrinsic to your life go, what was that like? Do you know, it's quite funny. Um, so as you know, uh, I was paired with Vicky O'Toole Renatus and she was very, very emotional about the sale of the business. It's a business deal to me. I'm not emotional. Um, she said, I haven't stopped crying. I went, why are you crying? She said, over the sale of the business. And I said, well, haven't you cried? I went, no. And she went, I think I'm going to have to take a leaf out of your book. And I haven't cried um, because it was something that my brother told me to do, and i done it. Um, and I'm very driven that way that if I'm told to do something and I'm very respectful. I can't imagine you've been told to do anything. Yeah, no, I'm very respectful. You mean, you mean dad was, dad, dad, dad was and mum were very strict when we were growing up. And if dad said jump, we said how high and that, you know, and I remember that and I was only 17 when he died. So I would never um give cheek or be rude to anybody uh, any elder uh, at all um so when he said it it was like right done deal right let's have a beauty parade pick who needs to do it and that was it i was told to do something i got on and i done it um i don't feel emotional about it i don't feel that i'm losing a baby or anything like that if anything i probably feel quite excited about what now i can do um, with my time because my whole life was work and, and, and I have no hesitation in that. I mean, it was my passion. I absolutely, when people say, oh, well, should I work life balance? Work is my life. It is my passion. I absolutely love the industry to death. Um, and it would be remiss of me to say that I'm not going to stay within the industry because, all those years of experience to just go and, I don't know, 
be a painter uh, and sit in West Cork and retire. Just wouldn't. You know, Vicky said she was playing golf and gardening. Um, you mean the, the two furthest things that I would ever think of doing tomorrow morning. Um, I just got so much excitement. I've got so many ideas for my son. And he's at that age where he needs a project now to take him off. And I said to him, I'm not going to do it for him. Um, but I'll point you in the right direction of the right people, the people I get to meet, the people I get to just mingle with and to gain knowledge and education is just amazing. Because what you see is what you get with me, whether no matter what, who you are, or what you are, what you see is what you get with me. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm not emotionally attached to it. I don't know why, but it just doesn't bother me. Yeah. Might that be different, though, when you stop going in on a day-to-day basis? Well, that was my biggest uh, bone of contention, was I'm doing that same drive for 36 years. So it's like, I really don't want to do it for 36 years. So the new owners are saying to me, well, would you do it on three-day-a-week basis? Um, but they've put a proposal to me, and it's a five-day week. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I could probably put... I, I can work from home on a couple of days because... What I need to do and what they want me to do, I don't need to be seen in the office every single day. And obviously I need to give space to the people that are coming up the ranks. I don't want people coming to me undermining the people that are being promoted when I'm not there. Something else I want to ask you about, given that you're Irish, born in Britain, and your Irish identity is so important to you, what do you make of the identity issues in Britain which brought about Brexit? What do you make of the country in which you live now? Uh, stupid, I suppose, is the, the first word that comes to my mind. Um, so when I went into the office, I turned around and... But they, they all turned around and predominantly... it's On my floor, it was predominantly male. The accounts downstairs are predominantly female. But they were all like, what are we doing, Jack? What are we doing, Jack? We haven't got a clue. What are we doing? I said, we're staying in. We're going to stay in because it's going to be a shit show. So we have to stay in. So stay in the European Union. Stay in the European Union. And whether you like it or not, we need to stay. We we can't cope with exiting. And then I think I was out the day of the vote. And then when I got back in the next day, I said, you all vote in, boys? And it was like, no, no. So-and-so said that he didn't want his kids going to school with a load of Eastern Europeans, so he voted out. And it was like, you are having a laugh with me. It's not about that. That's not what it's about. And they're, they're all looking at me going, oh. And it was it was probably within a month, they're all going, oh, shite, we should listen to you. And I said, well, I did tell you. But I've got to be honest, there was a real lack of honest, straight-speaking information about what exiting meant and what staying in meant. But, yeah, but anyone who tried to say what it meant was accused of project fear. It got caught up in this whole nationalism thing. And you mentioned earlier in 1950s at Britain where your parents went to and there was no Irish, no blacks. I mean, is there a strain almost of racism in England towards people who come from other places? Or do you feel that it has become more cosmopolitan? Um... A bit of both. It is very cosmopolitan. You know, where areas were very... um, So Crickwood and Kilburn would have been very concentrated with Irish, you know, back in the 60s. It's not now. You don't get that concentration in different areas of different nationalities. Um, 
but I think there is to a degree when it comes to when you go to A and E and the the queues eight hours long, and you th- and when you look, it's just like not an English person in the queue, and you're thinking, right, well, we all know why you're here. Um, so I think that really does need to be be dealt with because it's just not right. But presumably, even in your industry, you depend on foreign workers. Don't oh, without you? a shadow of a doubt, yeah, you know. Um, We've got more in, uh, English, um, second language, English-speaking people in the office and drivers, and we would be lost without them, and I totally understand that. So what I do to encourage them to join us is, one, I try and be employer of choice, and two, I, I produce every document that we do in four different languages. But we've probably got about 12 different nationalities, but a lot of them, they're so, so clever at picking up the English. What four languages do you use? So we use uh, English, obviously, first, then Polish, then Romanian, and then Portuguese. Portuguese? Yeah, we've got quite... Um, Is that because of Brazilian workers? More, no, more so the Portuguese. We've got, we've got a couple of cousins that have brought over friends. So, yeah, we've got quite a, tin, a contingency of Portuguese, yeah. So, and look, you know, I think everything's gone way too far you know, health and safety, employment law, the whole lot. You can't ask how old someone is. You know, you've got to print um, a doorstop on health and safety, whereas it needs to come back to common sense. So there's no point in giving someone a whole book of risk assessments and say systems that work in English when they don't know what half the words are. Um, So I really do think that England needs to recalibrate and come back to a, a common sense approach, even on even on the school. You um, know, I remember my son really struggling uh, to remember the whole year of what he learned for an exam at the end of the year. But when he went to America, there was a point system, and it was done weekly and then monthly, and it all built up to his final grade. Um, which, as far as I'm concerned, makes total sense. But to to spend the whole year educating yourself and then having to try and remember it all again, what's the purpose? And then the square root of, and they've used it in my life. You know, why don't they look at, you know, what we need to... So when I left school um, and I think about the things that I was challenged with first was buying a flat, bought my first flat, £48,500. <laughs> Wish it, they were still that price now. I wouldn't buy a shoebox for that. Um, navigating what mortgage I wanted, what type of mortgage, how that looked, how to sort out bills, how to do a schedule of your expenses. We didn't do any of that. You know, what career did you... The careers advisors were taken out, so we didn't know what career we wanted to do. And I think it's... I just think it's all wrong how we do things. I think it's just gone too far. Is it easier for women, do you think, in business in general now in England than it was for you in the 1980s and onwards? In some industries, yeah. Um, yeah, in some industries, yeah. So I recently was off the spin-off off um, 
the Renata's Goff's gig, the Cork Chamber asked me to speak in Cork and I was pleasantly surprised. There was at least nearly 50% women in the room and um, there was a lot of accountancy firms, a lot of uh, private equity and I was really surprised. In England, I'd still be looking at 90% men in the room. You know, I would be... I would. I was on a transport panel a couple of weeks ago at a massive transport expo uh, event, and I was obviously the only female. And we've got um, a standard in London. It, it, and cut long story short, it's basically to make the view of the cab clearer, lower, uh, more visible, so we can see vulnerable road users, wheelchair cyclists, you know, walking, because that's all what we're pushing for for a better environment. And um, there was a very large global parcel company. And I said to him, what's your vehicle renewal plan? And he looked at me and he went, what? And I said, what's your vehicle renewal plan? And he said, what do you mean? How often do you change your, your vehicles? And they'd be all Arctics. And he said, oh, five to seven years. So I said, it takes any manufacturer seven years to change any design on any vehicle. So if they want to change anything, it's a seven-year process. So it's nothing quick. So I said, you look at... So we're going to change the standard that's been out a couple of years again in October. So we changed that standard in October. Then then they're going to change it again. So it goes on a star rating. So we've got naught to 5, and now they want to go 3 to 5. So you look at your fleet of two two 2,500 lorries on a five to seven year renewal rate. We're already a couple of years in and we're changing to three to five stars. So it's not going to be long before it's going to be right, five star only, end of. And everything starts in London um, and then works its way out to either the UK or global. And um, how many staff would you have to train when when all the tech, because technology moves so fast. I mean, I can't keep up with it. How many staff would you have with different systems because there's different systems on the lorries? It's just totally impractical. But then the uh, moderator went on to ask another question and his response was, I better ask because Jackie might get aggressive. And when we were coming down off the stage, I said to him, I'm not aggressive. I'm far from aggressive. I just know my shit. I know what I'm talking about. And I'm comfortable with knowing what I'm talking about. And do you think... He described you as aggressive because you were a woman yeah. and he would not have made a similar comment no. to a man saying exactly the same no, thing in the same never, way. No, so the only way he could get away with the fact that he didn't know the answer to his question was the fact that she's a woman, she's aggressive. And I wasn't, I'm passionate, I'm passionate about what I do. And that comes across in my, in when I'm speaking. And when we got down uh, and when then we were shooed off the stairs, I said to him, I said, I'm far from aggressive. I don't even raise my voice. And I don't. No, you I don't. I don't raise my voice. Um, if I've got something to say, I'll say it. If I think something's wrong, I'll be the first to put put my, my, my hand up and say, look, no disrespects, but that, that is just simply not going to work. Um, but, yeah, quite quite strange in this day and age just because I was the only woman on that panel, he felt that he needed to identify me as an aggressive woman. And do you help other women now? Do you know what I hate? These women that get to the top and pull that ladder up. I really do. I really do Does don't. that happen? Oh, so often. So, so often. More often than it does to women that actually do help. So if I'm speaking at any event, 
Uh, I had actually a quite funny one in London. Um, it was done by the British and Irish Trading Alliance, and they they wanted a one to one with me. And we sat there, and there was this uh, Indian lady in the audience, and she asked me three times, "Did I suffer from imposter syndrome?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Why would you even think I would suffer from imposter syndrome? Like, I've got to be the most furthest person away from imposter syndrome." But she asked me. Th- Three times in the interview. Now, okay, the interview probably went on for about an hour. And afterwards, she came up and she said, oh, I'd love to catch up with you. I said, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. So what do you think she meant by imposter syndrome? That I I believe that people, women in particular... So if that, I mean, there's facts out there that if there's a job interview, if there's a job on the go and there's five key aspects and a man's got three of them, he'll go for the job. Whereas a woman's got to have the five attributes or she won't go for the job. I don't get that because I would be quite comfortable going, look, you know, I can do X, Y and Z absolutely fine with my eyes shut, but I might need a little bit of training. Is it available on A and B? And any employer that doesn't appreciate that someone's that honest with them, I think is is silly. Um, and I was asked once to do an in, uh, a comment on a male and a female CEO. Now, a male CEO gets the job, buys the expensive suit and, and walks around the office. I've, I, I, I deserve this job. I've got the suit, got the job. That's it. He's done. Whereas I think a female will work longer hours will try and convince people or feel that she needs to convince people that she's worthy of having that job. And that's where I think the difference is. I really wish women would just own their shit. You know your skill set, just get on with it. I interrupted you, sorry, by pushing you off on a tangent. Tell us about that woman who asked you three times about the imposter syndrome so then, and then what happened yeah, to me so afterwards. Yeah, so then about five people behind her came up and said, why did she ask you three times? Did you... So I said, I don't know. You're going to have to ask her. I really don't know why she asked me uh, three times like, and felt the need to ask me three times. Um, you mean, the audience laughed. You mean, they thought it was just hilarious because you can tell that I don't suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, far from it, but I can spot it a mile off. Yeah, I can, and, and I mentor. The amount of people that ask me to mentor, no problem, there's my card, give me a ring, that don't ring me. Yeah, yeah, really weird, really weird. So I've got one from the Renata Scoffs gig and she keeps in contact quite regular with me. Um, and I met her on this trip and I've given her basically a six-month plan. And it either will work and she'll fly or it won't work and she needs to realise that she's never going to break through the male domination within that business. Um but yeah, I do. I do think that you know. Um, I've got to be honest. I didn't realise that the Swedes that have bought me class women as second-rate citizens. You I mean it's coming apparent now, and it makes me laugh. Even it, from Scandi culture, where we assume that they're all far more into equality. No, no, no. They're not. No, they're not. Um, they've bought. They've bought their second 
business in the UK. They asked me who my nemesis was. I told them. They went off and bought them. Uh, it was run by a gentleman um, who actually had nothing to do with the business. He had a he had a, a, a man in the business who ran it impeccably from day to day. So he spent half, half his life in two different countries. He wasn't really in England. And when he walked into the room, oh, my God, you swear it was the king of... Um, and it was then I realised that not once had I been given the respect that man got by walking into the office, merely to say, best of luck, I'm off now, see you later, if you need me, you know my number, and he walked out. And I hadn't received the respect off the Swedes in the 18 months that I'd known them. But I think they're in a little bit of a state of shock that one, we never went into the recession I told them we weren't going into, and two, everything I've said is true to form, and three, that I've had a fantastic year, I've hit all my numbers, and they're telling me that I'm bucking the trend in Europe. Well, surely that tells you something. One thing I want to finish up by asking you about is given that you've spent your whole life moving backwards and forwards to Ireland, and that you're in contact with so many Irish people in the UK and involved with charities. What do you make of the way Ireland has changed in recent decades? So with my son being in America, I've seen the American Irish, the English Irish, and the Irish Irish. So they're miles apart. The American Irish can't tell you how proud they are of their 10th, their 10 generations back. Their uncle Bob was from wherever, um, and they absolutely love it. And they throw money at it like nobody's business. Like the more money they can throw at it, the, the bigger they are, the better they are. Then you come to England and people tend to like to do it a little bit more discreetly. Don't mind their name being up on the board as a sponsor, but don't like to shout about it. Then you go to Ireland and everything's a secret. You know, nobody wants to know... Nobody, nobody is shouting that they're a multimillionaire or that they're the biggest farmer or they're this or they're that. They want to keep it way under the radar. So I've got a girl that works for me remotely from Kimvara and uh, she used to work in a, a car showroom. And she would see it that, you know, people would come in and they would drive up in old bangers, but they, they really wouldn't want a brand new car because they wouldn't want the neighbours or the locals to know that they had that money, which I, I just find hilarious because I'm a firm believer in life for living. I can't take it with me, so I'm going to spend it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I've got bucket lists, you know, um, and I'm ticking off those those. Hang on, you still haven't told me how much you sold the business for. I don't think you're going to anyway, but no. what's, what's on the bucket list? So what's on the bucket list, Glastonbury? So I went to a book launch with a gentleman. Uh, he invited me to the book launch and him and the man, that Michael, that run Glastonbury are buddies for life. So um, that's next year, without a shadow of a doubt. I think I'm going to do the closing season at Ibiza this year. Love my, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't need drink. You know, in the amount of times that people have tried to take my car key off me, you can't possibly drive home. I can get merry with people that drink. Drink doesn't bother me. Ran a pub for three years. Absolutely love the crack. Um, 
So Glastonbury is definitely on the list. Uh, never done the Bahamas, never done the Caribbean. So that's definitely on the list. Uh, you know, the glass igloo that where you see that you just lie back in the bed and see the Northern Stars. That's on the bucket list. Um, so, yeah, I haven't got a massive bucket list because I've been very, very, very lucky in in the type of people I've I've actually met. And I've actually met an awful lot of people through the Irish people that I've connected with. So I've had the luxury of being taken to the White House to see the Christmas decorations. Um, I've met Charles and Camilla before they were king and queen at the Irish Embassy. Um, you know, your your politicians, I've met an awful lot of them when they visited England um, and I'm still in contact with a lot of them. And... You know, I socialise. Do you know what I find with the Irish is the classless, um, the way that Ireland is classless, whereas in England it's not classless. And I think that's why I felt so at home in Renatus at Goffs that day. You I mean, I was just in my element. Uh, it was probably, it's been my, it was my biggest gig I've ever done in all my life. But I was just sitting back looking and laughing and loving it. And poor Vicky was um, a little bit nervous. And I just absolutely loved it. But I heard after, because I had to go back to uh, London, I heard after that you had private equity on. And when it got to questions, one man said, well, you can ask me a question as long as Jackie O'Donnell's not in the audience. So I obviously have that ability to put the fear of God in people. But it's not deliberate. I think it's just that I'm larger than life. I don't, I mean, I would never ask someone a question that I knew that they couldn't answer or I would never, ever put anybody in a situation that I felt that they were uncomfortable with because I've been put in many. Jackie O'Donovan, thank you for being with us for Magnified. So that's it for today. So we hope you enjoyed listening to this. And again, thanks to Strategic Power Group for their support in the production. If you liked it, then subscribe, please, for further episodes at Go Loud or Spotify or Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And maybe send a link to a friend too. They might enjoy it as well. Anyway, until the next time, thank you for listening. Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.